Uh, if you're a Christian here this morning, I want to encourage you just for a moment to think back to your baptism. Back to that, that day. On that day, could you have imagined what the Lord had in store for you in, in your life? Uh, on, on Friday night, uh, the Law family, we had Garrett Connor and his family, so the brother who preached for us this past week, we had his family over to our home for some fellowship. Uh, and Garrett is a dear friend, and you know you've got a good friend when they can tease you, and they love to tease you. And so one of Garrett's favorite pastimes is uh, bringing my family along to tease me. So he wanted to pull out some of the old home videos that my mom made uh, years ago and, and watch them with my kids. Um, so that's what they, they did. And mercifully, they only got one to work. Um, and it was when I was baptized many, many moons ago. And over the last couple of days, I've been thinking a lot uh, about uh, that, that time, right? About uh, the day that I was baptized. And I can say with confidence that I had no idea what lay in front of me as a Christian. Who does, right? Uh, I didn't know where the Lord would lead and guide. I, I certainly didn't imagine that the Christian life would be full of ups and downs. I didn't imagine that Christian life would include storms and sorrows. You know what else I didn't imagine? Uh, I didn't imagine that in the midst of all of those ups and downs, in the midst of all of those storms and sorrows, uh, that God would prove himself faithful over and over again. I, I didn't imagine that when I reached down to the depth that I would find him there and that he would go deeper still and that his promises and his purposes would be powerful enough to sustain me. And this morning, as we study God's word together, that's what we're reminded of, of God's faithfulness in the midst of a storm. When all hope is lost, we see that God's promises and his purposes prevail. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open up a Bible, turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 27. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 936. And while you're turning there, let me just remind us of where we are in the book of Acts since it's been just a little bit. Uh, the book of Acts, it chronicles the ongoing ministry of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ through his disciples by the power of his Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus told his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And that's actually the program that the book of Acts follows. So our studies recently have taken us to that last phase in Jesus' program, seeing his disciples bear witness uh, to the good news of his resurrection, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, to the ends of the earth. So in particular, we have seen Jesus purpose to send the Apostle Paul through Jerusalem and on to Rome, where we're told in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, that Paul must testify to Jesus' work in Rome. Everything from Acts chapter 23 on kind of drives the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, and so, for what it's worth, from a Jerusalem perspective, Paul, uh, sorry, Rome, is emblematic of the ends of the earth. So when Paul arrives in Rome through his journeys, he's reached the goal of the, the book of Acts in many ways. Paul has uh, not had an easy path to Rome so far as we've studied. It's not about to get any easier as we're going to see in our chapter. He's made it through an attack by a mob, a few unjust trials, two plots on his life, corrupt judges, and complacent rulers. Felix and Festus, who we met in the previous chapter, simply kind of shrugged their shoulders at Paul's case uh, and decided, okay, well, he's appealed to Caesar, so we're just going to go ahead and send him on to Rome, to Caesar. 
And that's where our text picks up. And as I said, Paul's not had an easy path to Rome. It's not about to get any easier. In our passage, in Acts chapter 27, Paul moves from one ship to another and then right into, a heart, into the heart of a storm. Paul goes from shore, uh, storm to shipwreck to shore in our chapter. And amidst it all, we find God faithful to his promises. The, the captain and the centurion, they fail to heed Paul's warning concerning the danger of setting out to sea. But God graciously purposes to save Paul and the whole ship, even from the folly of the centurion and captain. God is determined to keep his promise that Paul will stand before Caesar and testify to Jesus. So, so here's what Acts chapter 27 teaches. Here's the main idea. God's promises and his purposes always prevail. God's promises and his purposes always prevail. Neither stormy seas nor sailors nor soldiers can thwart God's promise and purpose for Paul to stand before Caesar and testify to Jesus. Paul will reach his destination and make his declaration that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and he is Lord. Nothing stops God from accomplishing his purposes. And if that's what Acts 27 teaches, and it is, and I hope to show you that from the text itself, here's what it means for us. Just a glimpse into what we're going to think about. Here's what it means for you if you're a Christian. Nothing stops God from keeping his promises or accomplishing his purposes in your life. Nothing stops God from keeping his promises or accomplishing his purposes in your life. Nothing in all of creation can thwart the promise of God to land you safe on Canaan's shore. You will make it home to heaven. You will go through storms in this life. The winds will howl and hound and haunt you. Others will threaten, mistreat, and taunt you. But Jesus will keep you. As long as you remain in this world, Jesus has work for you to do. To testify to his grace and glory. So cling to the promises of God. And cling to the God who makes promises to you. That the Lord Jesus will not lose any of all who belong to him. This is what we think about from Acts chapter 27. And here's how we'll do it. We're going to think about Acts chapter 27 in three sections under three headings. The power of the storm. And we'll look at the first 20 verses of the chapter. Second, the promise of the sovereign God. Verses 21 to 38. And then the preservation of God's servant. Verses 39 to the end of the chapter. And I believe there's an outline in the bulletin that I hope and trust will help you to follow along as we study God's word together. Let's begin with our first point, the power of the storm. And as we do, follow along as I read the first eight verses of Acts chapter 27. Pick up there in verse 1. And, it was, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea to the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. 
And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone, coasting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lacie. Well, you see there the opening eight verses of the chapter kind of get the drama underway by setting the scene. Paul is bound for Italy just as God promised, and we meet the men who were with him on the journey. After being told that there are other prisoners there with Paul, so Paul's not the only prisoner on board the ship, we're introduced to the centurion in charge of Paul's care, Julius. And we're told that another believer, co-laborer with Paul from Macedonia, Aristarchus, was on board. Aristarchus is also a prisoner later, uh, as we read in Paul's letters. And the author of Acts, Luke, subtly includes himself in the journey under the plural we throughout these verses. So what we're getting here in this chapter is an eyewitness account of the events on the ship and in the storm. And there are a few important pieces of information that Luke gives us here to communicate in in these verses. Notes, take a look about halfway through verse 3. You see Julius there, he's the Roman centurion responsible for conducting Paul to Rome. Notice that he's generous to Paul. Julius graciously allows Paul to visit friends. And so it seems like there's a a congenial relationship developing. And though their relationship is going to come through some kind of bumps along the way, on the journey, in the end, God's actually going to use Julius to save Paul from death. Now, another important thing that Luke is highlighting for us here in the beginning of the story, in verse 4, notice that we're told they sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against them. That phrase, sailing under the lee, uh, is going to come up several times in the chapter. And sailing under the lee of an island kind of means sticking closely to the island's shore so that you're not beaten by the winds so much. You kind of take shelter in the shade of the island, so to speak. Um, And notice there, four times in verse 7, Luke mentions various forms of sailing difficulty. Did you see it? There's sailing slowly, arriving with difficulty, the wind not allowing them to proceed, and once again sailing under the lee of an island. Even coasting, mentioned there in verse 8, they coast with difficulty. Now, they set out to sea, but the journey's not been easy. And in all of this, Luke is foreshadowing that the greater difficulty lay ahead in the journey. Even Paul can perceive what lies ahead. Though Paul was not a professional sailor, he was a prolific sea traveler. Uh, after all, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, Paul tells us that he was shipwrecked three times. Uh, what kind of, with that kind of history, he must have traveled a number of times, at least three times, right? Uh, but look at what Paul says and what happens there in verses 9 and following. Read Acts chapter 27, verses 9 to 12 now. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete. It's not in Arizona. A harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Well, notice in Luke, in verse 9, Luke tells us the fast is already over. It's probably a reference to the Day of Atonement. You might have a footnote to kind of that effect there in your Bible. But what it indicates is the time of year, right? That we're rapidly moving toward winter. It's probably in October uh, sometime. And that was a treacherous time for sea travel. Paul could clearly perceive this, probably from his experience, but also from what they just experienced and the difficulty they had. 
Uh, the centurion and the captain we see here, they have other plans. They wanted to find a better place to winter the ship. And so we're told in verse 12 that the majority, the majority decided to put out to sea. And this part of the narrative is important because one of the lessons that the ship is going to need to learn in the journey is this. When Paul speaks, you should listen to him. Uh, you see, Paul is a messenger of salvation on behalf of Jesus. He's been divinely appointed and authorized by the Lord of creation as his spokesman. And as the people of the ship look to Paul and listen to him, they will remain safe. For God has promised to deliver Paul safely to Rome. And look at the majority's miscalculation there in verses 13 to 20. Read those verses now. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kaura, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned <coughs> here we see most clearly the power of the storm the majority presumed upon a pleasant wind they supposed and so they sailed be careful of presuming upon pleasant circumstances in life. They're not always promising. They're not always permission. A fair providence we see turned into a frowning providence. And what is striking about these verses is that Luke, he describes all the technical details, the maneuvers uh, and, and emergency kind of uh, things that these sailors do in the course of their sailing. And yet, they, they take all of these measures and yet their hope gradually slips away till it's completely gone. You see that they're met by a northeaster. What we're seeing described in that term is we're, we're seeing a, a storm that has hurricane force winds. And they give up trying to make headway there in verse 15 or simply driven along. They're no longer in control of their destiny. They, they, thought, they thought they were when they were setting out. But now it's clear to them uh, they were not in control. And things are so treacherous, as I said, they take a number of kind of emergency actions. They pull the lifeboat on board. They, they send cables or ropes around the hull of the ship. Uh, sometimes on ancient ships, there'd be these uh, metal things at the bottom. You could pass a rope through or a cable through and tighten it up to keep the, the ship uh, tight to its frame. So that, that's what they're doing here. It's called frapping. But even that uh, is not enough to alleviate their concerns. Things keep going from bad to worse. They keep, uh, to keep from running aground, they, they lowered the gear. So they probably only have one very small sail up at this point in time. Then on the second day, notice how Luke chronicles day by day by day. On the second day, they jettison the cargo. Uh, they're, they're getting desperate because on the third day, they throw the ship's tackle overboard. And Luke tells us they did it with their own hands. So, so day by day, the situation is getting more, more dire and more concerning. And then we reach verse 20. Re read verse 20 again. It's frightening. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest that means a great tempest 
lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They were lost at sea. As one commentator put it, no gear, no sun, no stars, no hope. The power of the storm had taught them to despair of even life itself. And it's here, in a moment of darkness and despair, that Luke introduces a central idea in this narrative. The idea of salvation. Did you see it in verse 20? All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They may have abandoned hope of being saved, but God was committed to their salvation. This is the first of five times in this chapter, in our text, the idea of salvation emerges. And that's because this is a story of salvation. We're going to see how God saves Paul and the whole ship. But there's something you need to come to terms with if you haven't already. If you are to be saved, spiritually speaking, if you're to be saved, then you've got to abandon all hope in yourself. You've got to abandon all hope of your schemes to save yourself from the wrath of God. These sailors, they were at their wit's end. They tried everything that they could to ensure the safety and security of their ship. But only the Lord who sent the storm could save them from the storm. One of the things that I so appreciate about Acts chapter 27 and its events is that there is a storm in this chapter. Um, After God led Paul through various trials, he could have designed Paul's history to be one of a peaceful passage to Rome. This could have been a smooth sailing chapter, right? That would have been kind of the Lord and fully within his prerogative and power. He could have designed the final chapters of Paul's life to be one of tranquility, arriving in Rome triumphantly and teaching Caesar that the true king, Jesus, has come. But that's not how Paul's life unfolds, is it? Paul's life moves from trial to tempest. And this is a picture, a true picture of life, isn't it? I mean, after all, didn't we read in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, a number of months ago, through many trials, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through, not around, but through. The events of this chapter are true to our lives, aren't they? Our lives aren't perfectly smooth. Everything is not always smooth sailing. They're often storm-tossed. Has that been true for you? Have you experienced some storms in your life? Have you faced trial and tribulation and tempest from time to time? And yet, here's a lesson you need to learn from Acts chapter 27. Christian, the promises of God and the God who makes those promises to you is strong enough to hold you in the storm. Whatever it is, He will not let your soul be lost. You belong to Him. And He so loves you that He will not let you go. This is what we get to see in our second point. The promise of the sovereign God. Follow along as I read Acts chapter 27, verses 21 to 26. Pick up there in verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. And have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet, now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. 
So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When you're hopeless, hunger almost disappears. And in these moments, it's in these moments we must cling to the promises of God. Remember we read from Jonah earlier uh, in, in the service. Jonah and Paul are very different. They're in a storm, right? But Paul is being faithful and obedient. And he's even proclaiming Christ in this storm. He stands up. He announces he's been visited by an angel of the Lord God. And that he's received assurance that they will make it out of the storm alive. There are several things that are precious about this promise. Notice that before Paul reassured the ship, God reassured Paul. And you better believe that Paul needed that reassurance. Yes, Paul had that promise of God back in Acts chapter 23 verse 11. That he must make it to Rome. But amid trial and tempest, we are tempted to doubt God's promises and the certainty of their fulfillment, aren't we? God's promises don't change, but our circumstances do. And that can shake our faith at times. And when they do, when these trials come upon us, fear and question can begin to rise in our hearts. We need to be reminded of God's promises and reassured by them. And so before Paul ministers to that ship, God ministers to Paul. And how sweet it was that God so cared for Paul that he reassured him in this storm. But what about us? We're not going to be visited uh, by an angel of the Lord like Paul was. Paul was an apostle. He was a New Testament prophet of God. So he had a special office. This is how God dealt with his apostles and prophets. He spoke directly to them in visions and dreams and angels. And what we're seeing in Acts chapter 27 is unique to Paul's office and his position as an apostle. So we shouldn't expect this in our lives, that angels appear to us. So, so where and how does God speak to us today? Where and how does he reassure us and comfort us? Well, God has provided for us a source and a reminder of reassurance and the promises of His Word in in our very Bibles. So when you want to hear from God, when your soul needs reassurance, go back to His Word. In the midst of trial and tempest, go back to the Word of God and find the promises of God. Promises like Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. Promises like Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, our very present help in trouble. Proverbs 18, verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Now, let me be clear. I am not saying, I am not saying that God has promised He will deliver you from all physical harm. After all, the Apostle Paul didn't live forever. In fact, it appears that he was executed by Nero in Rome. The truth is, is that one day you may go down with the ship in your trial, in your tempest. But we do have this promise. Ultimately and spiritually speaking, our souls will not be lost. God is with us. He is our help. He is our safety. He is our security. Do you know why? It's right there in the text. Because we belong to Him. You see that in verse 23? Paul said that there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. See, God owned Paul both by creation and and redemption. He sought him and bought him with Jesus' redeeming blood. And yet, Paul was a willing servant as well. Beloved, you belong to God. He owns you as his child, both by creation and by salvation. He made you, and he saved you, and he will not let you go. 
And I love the way that the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us of this truth. Here's question one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And here's the answer. That I, with body and soul, both life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood has fully satisfied for all of my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. Beloved, you belong to God by the blood of Jesus. Are you sincerely willing to live for Him? That's what Paul does here. He lives for Him and he serves Christ in this crisis. Paul makes a declaration of his allegiance there in verse 23. He not only belongs to God, but he blesses Him in worship. This is the God whom I belong to and the God I worship and I serve. And this declaration is also an invitation to those sailors on that ship to put their faith in God like Paul does. And maybe we should learn from Paul here. This is Paul's way of saying, though all around my soul gives way, Jesus is all my hope instead. Believe in Him. That's Paul's way of saying it here. Maybe in the moments of tempest and tumult and trial, we should say to those around, around us, I belong to God. I trust in Him. I worship Him. Why don't you join me in trusting and serving the God who rules over all? Including this trial. Including this tumult. Including this tempest. Take heart. I have faith in God. You should have faith in God too. This would be but an echo of verse 25. Coming out of our mouths for the glory of God. And notice. It's of divine necessity. That Paul stand before Caesar. That's the force of the word must there in verse 24. It's a divine necessity that Paul stand before Caesar. God is divinely determined that Paul will stand before Caesar. And while they didn't listen to Paul before, they should listen to him now. They should listen to him now because he announces another aspect of God's promise there in verse 24. Though the ship will be lost, not a single soul will be lost. God grants to Paul all those who sail with them, we're told there. And what that seems to mean, it seems like Paul was praying actually for the physical protection and salvation of the men on that ship. And it seems like the Lord is pleased to answer this question. Yes, Paul, I'm going to answer your, your prayer. I'm going to grant you these men and their safety. I'm going to grant their physical salvation. But, but notice that their physical salvation comes in connection with Paul. If they abandon Paul, as we'll see that they're tempted to do, they will abandon the one through whom God has promised their physical salvation and the one to whom God has promised their physical salvation. I think here is an analogy of our own salvation. As long as we are connected to Christ, we are safe and saved. But if we jump ship and leave Christ, all hope of salvation is lost. Don't abandon the promise. Don't abandon Jesus who said this in John chapter 6, verse 39. Listen closely to what Jesus said. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. In other words, God the Father has given, granted to Jesus a people to save. It is God's will that Jesus not lose a single one of those people. And nothing can thwart the will of the God of creation. What is more, Jesus has proven that He is mighty to save. His life and His ministry prove that He has the power to cleanse, heal, restore, forgive. 
His death and resurrection show His victory over sin and death. Christian, Jesus will keep you to the end. And in the end, He will raise you up from your grave because God has granted you to Him. Paul, I think, is a kind of representative of Christ on this ship. But let's read, let's read on where we see some sailors attempt to save themselves. Read verses 27 to 32. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and uh, the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Here we see some of the sailors' selfishness exposed, don't we? As they get closer and closer to shore, some of the sailors devise a deceitful and selfish scheme. Instead of clinging to the promise of salvation by the sovereign God, they attempt to take matters into their own hands and save themselves. Paul warns them that this is not the way of salvation. No one is ever saved by God through their own works. No one is ever saved by their own hands. Paul's warning was used by God as a means of bringing about their salvation. So the warning urged them to keep trusting the promises of God rather than trusting in themselves and their own schemes of that little sailboat. This is akin to what we see in the book of Hebrews. In that book where it's told, warning after warning not to abandon Jesus. There is salvation in Jesus, but there is no salvation outside of Jesus, outside of Him. There's no salvation in our own works. Friend, have you, have you cut the ropes of your own selfish scheming, your own attempts at self-salvation, trying to please God with your good works? Are you ready to cling to Jesus and to Jesus alone, to trust in Him alone for your only hope of salvation when faced with the storm of God's wrath against your sin? Friend, do you realize that just as these sailors were unworthy of being saved, so all mankind is unworthy of salvation. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God is not obligated by anyone or anything or any of our works. Your good works cannot persuade God that you're worthy of His love and favor. That's not the nature of grace and salvation. Grace is God's unmerited, unearned favor. It was generous and gracious of God to grant that they would be saved. God would have been completely just to allow all of the souls in that storm to be lost, except Paul's, because he had a promise to Paul that he would make it safely to Rome. God wasn't obligated to save them, but he graciously and generously promised that they would be saved. No one is entitled to salvation. Friend, God has made you in his image. He's made you to love him and serve him and trust him in the storms of life and in every eventuality of life. But the truth is, is you and I and everyone here this morning, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin is living our own way. That's what those sailors are doing. Okay, God's got this promise. He's got this plan. But we've got another one. And we're going to follow that one. They were rebelling against God and His plan. They are trusting themselves and their own resources. Sin is rebelling against God. Trusting in our own resources. Living our own way rather than God's way. 
And because of our sin and rebellion against God, we deserve to face His eternal and just wrath against our sin. But the good news of the Bible is that God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus lived the life that we have not lived. He lived the life of perfect obedience to God the Father, trusting Him every step of the way. Jesus lived a sinless life where we have lived sinful lives. And yet, Jesus gave up His life for the salvation of sinners. Jesus did not try to save His life like those sailors. Remember when He was hanging on the cross, they said, Save yourself, come down from there. And did Jesus do that? No, He remained on that cross as a substitute, as a sacrifice on behalf of sinners like you and me. And Jesus bore the storm of God's wrath against our sin for us and for our salvation. And three days after His death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And His resurrection signaled that all who turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus have the hope of eternal life, of being delivered from God's wrath. So friend, I urge you here today to abandon any attempts of saving yourself. Heed this word of warning. If you trust in yourself, you cannot be saved. Hear this word of welcome. Trust God's promise of salvation in Jesus. He has died to save sinners like us. He's been raised for the forgiveness of our sins. And salvation is found in Him and in Him alone. And if you want to know more about what it means to trust in Jesus for your salvation, to repent of your sins and walk after following in His way, come and find me at the door at the, uh, at the end of the service. I'd love to talk to you about the good news found in Jesus Christ, that we can be saved by Him. Now we see here that fortunately, the soldiers heeded the warning of Paul. But unfortunately, they cut the ropes of the lifeboat. They made a difficult situation even more difficult. Nevertheless, Paul continues to shepherd this ship. What he says in verses 33 to 38 brings refreshment and reassurance. Follow along as I read verses 33 to 38. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing, nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now this is an amazing stretch of verses. Notice Paul's practical and pastoral care for all on board the ship. He recognizes how hard this journey has been on all of them. It's been full of suspense and their stomachs have churned. They need strength. After they run aground, they need strength to swim. But once again, the idea of salvation appears there in verse 34. Paul tells them that the food will give them strength. And actually, in the original language, the idea underneath that word for strength is deliverance or salvation. You might even have a footnote again in your Bible communicating that. Uh, the food that they will eat will be part of God's means of saving them. God uses means, and He means for these sailors to use them. As believers, 
we will often find ourselves alongside others in the midst of hardship in this storm-tossed world. Here Paul displays a loving care for his neighbor, their health, and his need to eat. May God give us such calm and outward focus in the midst of storms in this life when faced with difficulties. May God give us such common sense too. Be careful not to look for mystical signs of God's leading when there is a meal right in front of you. Paul considers their physical needs. Even as he ministers to their spiritual needs too. We see that at the end of verse 34. Paul recognizes that they need to be reminded of God's promise and reassured. He tells them that not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. That is a promise of perfect preservation. And here Paul sounds like the Lord Jesus from Luke's gospel. So in Luke chapter 12, verse 7, Jesus said, Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Paul not only speaks like Jesus, but he also acts like Jesus, right? In verse 35, he does exactly what Jesus did in the Lord's Supper. This is a deliberate echo from that scene. What we're to understand here from this is that Paul, he's a representative of Jesus. He's a minister of Christ. Just as Jesus' journey to the cross was carefully led and guided by God, and just as Jesus trusted His Heavenly Father every step of the way, so Paul is being led by God to Rome, and he is trusting Him every step of the way. Paul's even giving thanks to God. Notice there. Beloved, I, I know that praying silently before a meal in a public place is fashionable, but what if God meant to use your public, audible, joyful, thankful prayer to minister to the soul of another? What if your public, audible, joyful, and thankful prayer would bring courage and refreshment and reassurance to others? That's what Paul's prayer does here. Paul is trusting God's promises. He's living in light of it, publicly so. This is what you do in the midst of storms. You keep trusting the promises of God. You keep praying, and you keep ministering Christ to others. To be clear, I don't think these sailors were taking communion. I don't think that we're to understand that these Men came to faith, were baptized, and they formed a church on that ship. But it should make us hopeful that they would come into communion with the living God through the witness and ministry of Paul. Paul, he set a model for these men. And seeing his confidence and courage, they were refreshed and followed in his footsteps. Believer, you can set a model for others around you by your faith, your public, visible faith in God and trusting Him. And I love all of the little details that Luke gives us in this narrative. Don't you love the fact that in verse 37, he gives this little aside. We were all, in all, 276 persons in the ship. Why do you think Luke gave that detail? I mean, I think he means to underscore not only the breadth of Paul's witness. They all ate. They were all encouraged, verse 46. But more importantly, I think he means to underscore the magnitude of our sovereign God's promise and power. It wasn't as though God had promised to save four, or 14, or even 40. As, as amazing and miraculous as that would have been. No, our God purposed to save 276 persons in all. And he was overseeing every detail to see that every one of them would make it safely to shore. Be amazed. By God's sovereign omniscience and omnipotence. He is able to preserve and govern and guide the millions of minuscule decisions and details to ensure that His promises come to pass. The storm was powerful, but God's promises and His purposes were even more powerful. Beloved, in the midst of life's storms, remember your God's promises and His power 
Live and love and labor like Paul. Speak of God's saving power. Invite others to worship Him. Care for their physical needs. Pray with a joyful and thankful heart. Abstain from selfishness and sin. Heed the commands and warnings of Scripture. And above all, cling to Jesus Christ and don't let Him go. In verse 38, the sailors we see, they take their final action to prepare the ship to run it aground. They throw the wheat overboard. And the purpose of this is to um, kind of lighten the ship, to, to allow the ship to kind of sit up higher on the waves so they can come closer to the shoreline and be in more shallow waters. That means when they run aground, they'll be nearer to the actual beach. And so let's see how the story ends with our third and final point. Our third and final point, the preservation of God's servant. And I should say, it might be more accurate to say the preservation of God's servant's and the other 275 passengers as well. But let's begin. Read, read Acts uh, chapter 39 uh, to, sorry, chapter 27, verse 39. Read to just 41 for now. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But, striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. Just pause there. You understand what's happening here, right? They behold the beach. Notice in verse 39, their plan is, if possible, to run the ship on the shore of that beach. Right, they want to put the boat on the beach. That's the goal, to put the boat, boat on the beach of the island. And in verse 40, we're told that they made for the beach. And then there's that gigantic but, right, in verse 41. But striking a reef. So their, their hopes are dashed against that reef. They ran the vessel aground. It's a terrible situation. This boat uh, that they've kept tied together by ropes is now being bashed against the reef by the surf. It's a kind of situation that makes you... They've got to incur some loss of life. Somebody's going to be lost in this situation. How is there hope for those who can't swim? Even for those who can swim, there's grave danger. What if they get caught between the boat and the reef and smashed? How, how will they be saved? How will God keep His promise? Will the seas steal a life away? Keep reading now. Verse 42. Let's go to the end of the chapter this time. 42. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. The sea was a threat to life, and now we see that the soldiers are a threat to life. Paul's life is in danger because he's a prisoner. They didn't understand that things have unfolded exactly as Paul said they would. Right? Remember back up in verse 26? Move your eyes up there. Remember Paul said they must run aground on some island. Now when Luke said that, they were adrift in the Adriatic Sea. And so at that point, if you were like to chart their course and put them on a map, it would be like finding a needle in a haystack. There's only one island out in that direction. It was the island of Malta. God had directed that ship to that island. He brought them there. 
But would he bring them this far only to let his promises fail? Would he bring Paul this far and then fail to keep his promise and he would make it to Rome? No. So how does God save Paul? Through the Roman centurion. It's a remarkable fulfillment of God's promises. God moves in a mysterious way. It's a most surprising turn of providence. The centurion who had ignored him now saves him. Not only does the Roman centurion spare Paul's life, but he spares the lives of the other prisoners as well. The hearts of rulers and authorities are like streams of water in the hand of God. He turns them wherever he wills. Proverbs 21 verse 1. And here God turned the centurion's heart to save Paul and all on that ship. So Paul is saved from the sword. But he and everyone else is also saved from the sea. Those who could swim safely made it to shore. Those who couldn't got a plank or a piece of the ship. Again, pause and consider the power and the particularity of God's providence. For those who were swimming, God didn't let the current or the waves overtake them. They weren't caught in a rip, rip current, right? Or caught between the ship and the reef. For those who couldn't swim, he provided pieces of wood and planks. And not just that, but he moved each current. He pushed each wave, each particular wave in just the right direction so that every man would land safely on that shore. Just read the conclusion of the story one more time. It's a remarkable verse. The last few verses of the chapter. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. A number of translations put it like this. And thus it happened that all reached shore. Others put it like this. In this way, everyone reached the shore. J.D. Phillips' translation puts it like this. So it came true that all reached the shore. Kind of like it was a fairy tale ending. But I like how the translators of the ESV have put it. And so it was that all were, do you see the next word? Brought safely to land. And I think that this translation underscores God's divine activity, preserving not one, not two, not three, but 276 persons. God brought them safely to shore. And I think it's appropriate to underscore this as God's saving activity. Because in the original language, that phrase brought safely is diasozo. And sozo means to save. Uh, Matthew Henry had this to say about the concluding words of Acts 27. They were rescued from the dreaded sea and brought to their desired haven. What should these men do who washed up on shore? They should do what the psalmist said. In Psalm 107 verses 31 and 32. It was read for us at the very beginning of the service. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love. For His wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol Him in the congregation of the people. And praise Him in the assembly of the elders. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. Beloved, we have seen that neither stormy seas, nor sailors, nor soldiers can thwart God's promise and purpose for Paul to stand before Caesar and testify to Jesus. In other words, God's promises and purposes always prevail. And before we get to the end of the book of Acts, we'll see that Paul will reach his destination and make his declaration that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and that He is Lord. The storm is powerful, and God's purposes, His promises, His providence ride upon that storm and preserve His servant and all the souls in that ship, bringing them safely to shore. Beloved, each storm, each gust of wind, 
Each crashing wave in your life is ultimately coming from the hand of God to bring you to His appointed destination for you. All that He does is good and for your good. That doesn't mean that providence is easy or pleasant. These men were cold and wet and tired and hungry and maybe that's how you make it to heaven. Cold and wet and tired and hungry. They were at sea for 14 days, at least 14 days. The storms that we face in life may be 14 days or 14 months or 14 years or 40 or for however long the Lord is pleased to choose. But you must believe that the God who loves you and the God to whom you belong is working all things together for your good to bring you safely to shore. Nothing in all creation can thwart the promise of God to land you safely on Canaan's shore. You will make it home to heaven. You will go through storms in this life. As I said, the winds will howl and hound and haunt you. Others will threaten, mistreat, and taunt you. But Jesus will keep you. Beloved, as long as you remain in this world, Jesus has work for you to do. So get busy doing it. Testifying to His glory and His grace, His promises, His power. And as you do, He will meet you in the depths and ride upon the storms and sustain you. So cling to the promises of God and cling to the God who has promised you that the Lord Jesus will not lose any of all that belong to Him. Let us thank the Lord for His steadfast love. Let us praise Him now in prayer. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this chapter in your word. Uh, we stand amazed at the power of the storm. We personally know how hard it is often in life. That the storms that we face in life often lead us to abandon all hope. And yet, in that darkness, hope in Christ always remains. Hope in his promises. You are faithful. You are ever true. And so strengthen our faith, we pray and ask. Remind us that your promises and your purposes always prevail. Preserve us and yet lead us to proclaim Christ in every storm and gale. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.